Hey, Fidelity. How can I remember to invest every month? With the Fidelity app, you can choose a schedule and set up recurring investments in stocks and ETFs. Oh, that sounds easier than I thought. You got this. Yeah, I do. Now, where did I put my keys? You will find them where you left them. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Are you tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? Well, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Just watch me love myself That's all I want Got what I want That's all I want I'm not sorry I'm Claire Fallon And I'm Emma Gray And this is Love to See It, an obsessively detailed recap podcast about The Bachelor and other pop culture that makes us laugh, cry, and curse the patriarchy. We can't live with these shows, and we can't live without them. But we can break down every juicy moment and unpack all the weird messages these shows send us about love, sex, and dating. Welcome to Love to See It, a podcast where we get a real in-depth lesson in how to watch reality TV like a sociologist. Reality TV is a cultural product, and just like any other cultural product, it can tell us so much about ourselves, our social roles and expectations, our values, and the narratives we tell about ourselves and about each other. And we really try to watch these shows critically, and there are a lot of ways to do that. But one way which we wanted to explore in depth this week is through a sociological lens, which helps us see what these shows in all their messy glory reflect and reveal about our society. Yeah, it's a real like zoom out framework. (laughs) (laughs) So today we're talking to Danielle J. Lindemann, an associate professor of sociology at Lehigh University, about her fascinating new book, True story, what reality TV says about us. Welcome, Danielle. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Emma is a sociology major, so she kind of dabbled in sociology a little bit before. To me, a lot of this was brand spanking new, very fresh information. What a wild ride. I was just getting really excited every time I saw Judith Butler name drop because that was really like my jam in college a million years ago now, but like I read a lot of Judith Butler because I took a lot of gender courses. So I teach a lot of gender courses. Yeah. Fantastic. So I sign yes. a lot of Judith Butler. <laughs> did any, so I was asking you before, did any of the sociological terms, like did you remember them? Did you pull them from the recesses of your mind? Yeah, some of them. A lot of it was like, ah, uh, yes. Durkheim. I Durkheim. do recall that name. Ah. <laughs> uh, uh, Durkheim exists. <laughs> uh, it is feel just old. like riding a bike, <laughs> remembering Durkheim. But it did, Durkheim. it did really make me think about how much of the way that we talk about 
The Bachelor on our podcast feels like at least lightly influenced by my academic, my low-key academic background in sociology, like so much about the performance of gender and and all of that. And so I'm really excited to get into get into this book with you because it was such a fun read. I was like obsessively underlining every page. I love yeah. to hear that. I, I My students often ask me like, what can you do with a degree in sociology? <laughs> this is one thing that you can do. It's you amazing. can podcast. You can <laughs> podcast. Um, so let's dive in uh, with, with a little bit of your background. Danielle, what has been your relationship with reality TV and why did you want to write a book about it? Oh, yeah. So I often say kind of my whole life has been, people ask me about the research for this book, kind of my whole life has been in research for this book, um, or at least <laughs> since I was kind of a, a teenager and I first discovered the real world. Um, so, I mean, I am a fan. I'm unabashedly a fan. You know, I kind of position myself that way in the book. But even though I'm a fan, I recognize that there's kind of ugly things about reality TV or it exposes kind of ugly elements of our culture. So I'm kind of upfront. Um, about that in the book. But I also don't think that I would be such a fan if I didn't really believe in the kind of positive, kind of transformative power of reality TV. So I'm an evangelist for reality TV. I think it can be an amazing sociological tool and it can teach us so much um, about ourselves and our culture. Is there a reality series that to you just like means reality TV that like is the the seed of your passion for it? Um, well, this, I, I think the seed of my passion was I was a young kind of teenager on Long Island and I started watching, we had just gotten cable and I started watching the real world London, which was not the first season of the real, it was like the fourth season of the real world. But I just, something about this program just drew me in. It really hooked me, which is interesting because apparently that season was supposed to be incredibly boring. The showrunners like, never showed it in reruns. <laughs> they said it was a disappointment. Jonathan Murray said it was a disappointment. <laughs> Um, but to me, like, there was just something that drew me to that show. And I, like, neglected my homework. And my mom was convinced I wouldn't get into a good college because I was so <laughs> obsessed. Like, just recording this episode of VHS tapes and watching them back. So I think for me, that was just sort of the hook that really drew me into reality TV. And then did you expand your repertoire beyond that once oh, you were hooked? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean— once I was hooked, I, I think, so the next hook came for me when I discovered the Real Housewives, um, the Real Housewives of Orange County, and then they started, like, going out into to other franchises. Um, that's definitely a show that that really hooked me in. Um, and then RuPaul's Drag Race, absolutely, kind of, maybe I was straying from reality TV, that pulled me back. Um, especially as someone, you know, who, who teaches women and gender and sexuality studies classes. Um, it's such an, it's such an amazing kind of sociological tool. So how do you think that having a sociological lens on reality TV can shift the way that viewers engage with it? Like, what does looking at it as a sociologist really bring to your viewing of, of reality shows? Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, I think as I tell my, so I teach a class on the sociology of reality TV at Lehigh University. And, you know, I often tell my students, like, we're going to learn all these kind of ugly things or things, ugly things that reality TV shows us about ourselves. But at the same time, right, we can use that knowledge. Watching reality TV doesn't make us bad people or else I'm a bad person too, <laughs> right? Or most of the, the populace is, are, are bad people because most of us are watching it. Millions of us are watching it. Um, it doesn't make us bad people, but sort of having this critical lens looking at reality TV, it can help us understand really kind of our social inequalities 
You know, it puts on full blast kind of our racism, our sexism, our classism, our heteronormativity, our materialism. So it really shows us some of the ugliest things about ourselves. But looking at it through the sociological lens can really be useful because then we can really understand those kind of dimensions of our society. And again, the things that we might want to change. Yeah, I I love hearing you put it that way, because to me, that really feels like what we hope the central thesis of our podcast is, I think. I like I think that that is, that is how we want to use reality TV and how we want to encourage the people who listen to this show who also want to engage with, with reality TV in like a responsible, critical, and interested way. So I love, I feel just very like a warm hug of affirmation from you really is what I'm saying. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> or kindred spirits. Yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> there is something about reality TV being this extreme funhouse mirror. And I think that that's something that you talk about a lot in, in the book is the way that this reflection of tropes, but then magnified almost makes it easier for us to identify what's what's going on in the culture around us, where maybe these things might appear in a much more subtle way. Exactly. It kind of puts on full blast these elements of our culture, which other forms of media show as well, but really, again, in this kind of amplified way. And so by kind of tracing the contours of those caricatures, we can really better see ourselves. Why do you think that is? Like, what is it about reality TV that makes it easier to see those things? So I think one of the things is that it's ostensibly people just being themselves, even though we know, right, that reality TV isn't always quote-unquote real, right? It's curated, it's cut, it's edited, specific people are chosen. So it can kind of get away with a little bit more in some ways, um, in ways that script, in terms of, you know, promotion of stereotypes, right, in ways that scripted TV may not have, may not be able to get away with because someone kind of has to be writing it. Um, even though people are kind of writing reality TV in some ways. Um, because, you know, they can just say, well, no, these are just just real people behaving in real ways, right? even though that's not necessarily always true. So I, I, I certainly think the ostensibly unscripted format is what kind of allows it to kind of go buck wild in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's interesting because it's, I think it's very true. But also we are, I think, seeing so much uh, scrutiny starting to be put on some of these shows in terms yeah. of whether they are intentionally making choices and crafting what they put on screen in ways that are harmful. And, you know, are these shows perpetuating racism? Are they perpetuating really harmful stereotypes? Do you think that that, um, that, that way of looking at reality shows is... I don't want to say misplaced, but, like, by doing that, are we potentially, like, taking away a tool for seeing what's really going on in our society? Or is is looking at these shows as something to themselves be altered, um, is that a tool for for fixing society in reverse, almost? Mm. Like, how should we, how do you think yeah. we should be looking at that balance of saying, well, this is a great way to hold a mirror up to the worst parts of, of our culture versus by holding up a, a more flattering image, we can we can shift the way that people actually think. Yeah, it's such a difficult balance, right? I mean, I think we should always be more circumspect about the media that we produce and that we consume. So ideally, 
I, reality TV wouldn't promote such, you know, like ostentatious racial and gendered and sexualized stereotypes, right? I mean, an ideal world, but the, the truth is that they do. And even though there does seem to be a little bit of acknowledgement about that now, and maybe a little bit of the moving of the needle, just in terms of, you know, trying to diversify casts like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, mm-hmm. which I know you you talk about. Um, even though there does seem to be moving of the needle a little bit, I mean, still fundamentally, these shows are really promulgating some, you know, pretty pretty gnarly stereotypes that have existed in our culture for hundreds of years. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. But I would say as a person, yes, ideally, they wouldn't promote stereotypes, but they do. And because they do, we can use them as kind of a teaching tool. Right. So it's almost like holding two truths at the same time or two different goals. Like this, this is a cultural product that exists. Ignoring that it exists and is popular is just sort of burying your head in the sand. So instead, use it as a tool and look at it critically. And at the same time, hold the powers that be responsible for not perpetuating harmful stereotypes and inequalities. And like, can we kind of do both at the same time, maybe is a challenge for us as as consumers. Yeah, I, I never understand the people who really want to ignore that it exists because that's just empirically false, right? Like whether you like it or not, it exists. Millions of people are consuming this. More people are watching it than not. We've seen the way that it influence our culture, influences our culture. So whether you're a fan or not, this is a cultural juggernaut. I'd actually be interested in hearing whether you two kind of receive pushback because, I mean, your jobs also revolve around reality TV. I mean, oftentimes people, I kind of get the pushback that this is kind of like not a not a realistic mm-hmm. or worthwhile object of study. And this is kind of just this frivolous thing. Why are we even giving it more attention? You know, and, and to me, that really ignores the sort of potency of reality TV that in demonstrable ways. I think we, we definitely have received that external criticism, I think, especially at the beginning when we were starting it and mm-hmm. and around, you know, we were doing the podcast during the run up to the 2016 election. And I remember getting so many tweets that were like, how dare you talk about reality TV when there's an election? I was like, well, oddly, I can pay attention to both at the same time. And, and they're they related. Also, and they're, and they're related, related. And there's lots to take, you know. But, but I think that that is, there is, and even now, I'll sometimes get, like, shock from people in my life or new people I meet being like, well, but you're such a smart woman who considers herself a feminist. How can you watch mm-hmm. The Bachelor? <gasps> and it's so fascinating because I think we feel that that's exactly the reason that we <laughs> engage with the right. show like The Bachelor. Although we also, I think, have um, had a lot of internal conflict about tying ourselves to this kind of inherently problematic franchise. So we, we're probably, we receive a push-pull both internally and, and externally. Interesting. Yeah, and I can imagine in an academic context, I mean, for us, I think ultimately we do have people who choose to listen because they want to watch the show or they want to hear about it through this lens. And sometimes we'll hear, oh, I don't want to watch anymore um, myself, but it's great that you're still doing this. In an academic realm, and I mentioned I come from an academic background myself, I feel like there isn't a lot of respect for this kind of text in a lot of settings. And so has that been challenging for you to, do you ever feel like you have to like make the case for why this is worth study? 
Oh, all the time. Yeah. And I feel like, well, anytime you're studying so-called kind of low culture in academia, mm-hmm. it kind of has this stink attached to it, right? The stigma. <laughs> I think if I were studying opera, I wouldn't be encountering the same kind of criticism. <laughs> but reality TV is almost the lowest of the low in some ways. Yeah. If I were studying, you know, there are people who study like football or, you know, sports who I don't think receive the same level of pushback as I do. And honestly, I think some of that is gendered, right? Because reality TV is this cultural product associated with, you know, everyone's watching, but more often it's women viewers, right? Women on the screens more often than men, right? And we love to devalue cultural products that are related to women, right? Like chick Well, you don't say. Yeah. No, you've never heard that before, have you? <laughs> so yeah, there's definitely that. I, and I believe the pushback is, is gendered, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case, especially the contrast with sports is always so telling because they are sort of the same thing. Well, people, yes, uh, in a lot of ways, you get from reality TV, and it's like, well, first of all, I don't have to get a value; I can just enjoy it, right? We can just consume things because we like them, right? Just like you know, I would never, you know, you know, degrade somebody for enjoying football, even though I don't like football. Right? And no one has ever explained to me what value football gives a viewer that sounds any different from what you might get from following a reality yes. show. So it's very similar. I am left <laughs> unconvinced. Uh, but let's get into The Bachelor a little bit. I know it's not the main focus of your book, but this is a Bachelor recap podcast. And so we were wondering for our listeners who, who do watch The Bachelor, when when we're watching a Bachelor show in particular, what tropes or narratives should be should we be attuned to? Like, what are some of the top ones that spring to mind as being, like, really central to the Bachelor franchise? Oh, there's so many. Um, so I think, <laughs> That's you a know, big question. I know. Well, as I, so I write about the Bachelor kind of periodically throughout the book because it touches on so yeah. many different themes. I yeah. was going to say, it's pretty present, actually, for anyone who is thinking about purchasing this book and is a Bachelor fan, The Bachelor comes up in like almost every chapter. Because, yeah, because it, again, it does touch on so many things. Race, gender. I mean, even just thinking about, you know, again, gender and gender performance, right? When you look at a show like The Bachelor, where you have sort of these women who are doing this, again, exaggerated performance of gender, right? Eyelashes, like two feet long eyelashes, <laughs> wearing sequin ball gowns at 10 a.m. and drinking champagne, but never eating, obviously. <laughs> Right. So you see this kind of exaggerated performance of femininity and you might be tempted to say, oh, those are just wacky people like doing wacky things on reality TV. But, you know, we're all performing gender in muted ways. Some of these same expectations that we see being performed on The Bachelor, expectations for what a woman is, what femininity should be. You know, we're all doing that in our everyday lives. We're just do acceding to it in kind of more muted ways, not in these exaggerated sequin ball gown kind of ways. So gender, absolutely. Um, Heteronormativity, huge theme on The Bachelor, right? I mean, will there ever be a gay bachelor? I would probably say no. Um, But the whole idea is, right, it's just women. It's the idea, expectation that women are going to be attracted to men, men to women, right? They're only going to pair up as a dyad, right? It's only going to be two people, right? 
very seldom just, I mean, sometimes they don't pair up in the end, but that's very seldom, right? They, typically it's defined and then it's associated with marriage, right? And it's always associated with love, right? That That's the right reason, right? Here for the right reasons. The right reason being love. Obviously, like you're not going to be a, in a couple unless it's related to loving that person and maybe moving toward marriage. So you can see these kind of very conservative and narrow ways of thinking about being in a relationship kind of being perpetuated on this show. And yes, they're kind of hyped up to the extreme where people are getting married to someone they've only known for six weeks or whatever, right? But those expectations permeate our everyday life too in terms we think about, you know, what makes a relationship real? What makes a relationship authentic? And what are kind of the right reasons for being in a relationship with somebody? Yeah, I mean, the show really is just like the ultimate vehicle for conservative compulsory heterosexuality. Yes! Oh, <laughs> like, that's, a, which, that's a great way of phrasing it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and it's interesting because like reality TV, you think about being so zany, right? Like those are those rough, <laughs> wacky, outrageous people. But, you know, as, as I say in the book, in some ways, reality TV is the least zany. It's the most conservative content on TV in terms of its values. Yeah, that's completely true. And, you know, you brought up the, the idea of homophily uh, in the, the cu- chapter on couples uh, in which yeah. The Bachelor looms large and the idea that we should pair off with people that we share a lot of traits in common with. And if we don't, that it's sort of illegitimate and it should be for reasons of love and compatibility. And it can take such a minor difference on a show like The Bachelor to say, like, oh, well, like, I don't think that this woman who, like, has a different hairstyle would, like, fit into your lifestyle the same way as a woman who has hair more like women that you know, probably. You know, like, such a small detail can violate that on The Bachelor and and sort of induce the other contestants to start saying, like, I don't think she's a... I don't think that you two can really fall in love because you're too different. You don't, like... You're not compatible because you have incompatible hairstyles or come from different backgrounds or your, your parents are divorced and and hers are still together. Yeah. But again, that's kind of this sort of augmented mirror of real life where in real life we do have this homophily, right, as you point out, where we do tend to pair up with people who are quote unquote like us demographically. Um, and that's kind of the social expectation. There was that great quote from the SNL skit where um, it was like the the virgin hunk or whatever, where the woman comes on. My <laughs> God, I love that. I'm, bl- I'm, so I'm black good. and I have short hair, so goodbye. Right? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's out before yeah. she even begins. <laughs> I remember even when Becca Martinez was on The Bachelor, yeah. and it was literally just the short hair that was. I feel like she was a made hot twenty three year old white woman, and they were like the short hair. She is deviant. Didn't she, like, disappear on a pot farm and her mom had to track her down? Oh, yeah, so while she was taping, while she was filming the show, she had, like, maybe neglected to tell her mom that while it was airing, she was going to be working on a pot farm with her friend. And so her mom, after she came off the show, reported her missing. That's my recollection. Yes, but she was not actually But she was fine. She was fine in the end. And... Yeah, and despite her short hair, has been able to live a happy and fulfilled existence. Who would have known? Going shocking, truly. Uh, yeah, so you also were talking a little bit about gender as a social uh, 
performance on on the show and the way that reality TV can kind of showcase the performance of gender uh, while also reifying it as something that is innate rather than socialized. And like, how does The Bachelor create this optimal setting for that performance? Like, what what is The Bachelor doing structurally to bring that performance out and its contestants? I mean, I think you nailed it when I, now I can't quote you, but you said something about, you know, how it's this perfect vehicle for the performance of kind of heteronormative femininity, right? Because the whole aim is, and it's sort of a throwback to this kind of old school, like courtship structure, right? Um, Which I think is very comforting to a lot of people who view the show, right? Who maybe would like to see gender roles kind of go back to this kind of ostensibly more kind of traditional time, which doesn't even really exist, as I talk about in the book. There there was no kind of like golden era of traditional gender roles. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of kind of cultural anxiety about changing gender roles, changing racial roles, you know, what have you. Um, and the, the, the bachelor is kind of a a pacifier for that in a way. And it, it does kind of serve as like an excellent stage for, again, this, the very premise, right, is that two kind of heterosexual people performing gender in very normative ways, right? Oh, not threatening at all the way they're performing gender are going to hook up with each other and they're going to be pretty similar on most kind of demographic characteristics. That's kind of the whole premise of the show, which does kind of make it an amazing platform for observing um, the gendered expectations that we have, as well as like racial and class expectations as well. Yeah. I mean, even just thinking about like the rose ceremonies and the attire that is, uh, you know, almost required of the women at these rose ceremonies, the gowns, Mm -hmm. the like. Remember when a woman wore a jumpsuit and then went home night one? (laughs) Like, yeah. How dare you? How dare you? (laughs) I mean, there's a reason that like, you know, Miss USA and Miss America pageantry just feeds right into the bachelor like you have so many pageant girls like almost women who are almost used to doing feminine drag essentially Mm -hmm. like really thrive in a setting like the bachelor um and we just like in last week's episode right before we taped this we saw the the pretty woman date that they have and that is like extreme extreme conservative gender performance it's just oh god it really is it really is a beautifully rich text yeah they do they have they have these dates that are just beautiful opportunities for women to dress themselves in a seductive feminine way and also to like play the role of like the traditional feminine role of like the receiver of gifts so grateful yeah, the grateful <laughs> recipient of gifts. Something else yeah. that we think about a lot that we want to ask you about is that, obviously, as you alluded to before, women make up the vast majority of the Bachelor audience. Um, and some of these women are, of course, women who do kind of buy into the gender roles that we see aped on the show. But there's also a large group of women who are critical of those roles and yet still really love to watch and consume this kind of content. So I was wondering, like, why you think 
women are are drawn to programming that reinforces harmful cultural stereotypes ab- about women. I mean, I think it's a mixed bag, right? I think to some extent, so the they're the people who are sort of watching it analytically and critically, like probably us here, <laughs> right? Um, but also having fun with it as well. Um, I think there are the people who, you know, studies shown show that some people are drawn to reality TV for kind of voyeuristic reasons, right? There's the mm-hmm. train wreck, right? You watch the train wreck to remind yourself that you are not of the. Tra- you might be messed up in your own unique, you know, interesting ways, but you're not at least like you're not like, like in the I'm rose not ceremony. That bad. Yeah, I would never do right? that. I'm not like throwing a glass of wine. And someone's face right after a rose i'm not you know that jumpsuit woman right so it's this sort of social distancing where you're saying okay great at least i'm not that person it's kind of hierarchical distancing as well but i mean i also i mean i think you know women obviously also kind of internalize misogyny and and sexism as well um so it's reasonable to believe that that's you know that's one of the reasons that they're drawn toward the show as well yeah. Oh, I wanted to say something about. Oh, sorry. <laughs> about drag, though. I, 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 when you were talking about drag, like that's so interesting to me because I do say that in the book that you know reality TV shows us so many dragged up performances of gender, only some of which are actually done by drag queens, right? There's RuPaul's Drag Race, but then there's The Real Housewives, then there's The Bachelor, right? Who are doing these kind of augmented performances of femininity, and Judith Butler. Yes. Your favorite, your fave, my favorite, right? She talks about right how drag actually, you know, can show us by looking at this kind of augmented form of gender. It can show us kind of the gendered expectations that permeate our everyday lives. And this is why Judith Butler blew my fucking mind in yeah. college. I was like, oh, now I understand. Like when you frame the per- all performances of gender as performances. It makes it much easier to to grasp how gender operates in our culture. Like it's it almost feels like a simple concept, but it makes so much sense. Like the just the idea that we are all waking up in the morning and we are all performing the gender I- identity that we connect to or that we've been assigned in some capacity. And The Bachelor is just such an obvious example of that. Like there is such a a maintenance required in order to do well on the show. Yeah, and there's something about the way that the show handles it in contrast to some other, in contrast to some other shows that maybe linger more over the transformation process that I think that The Bachelor typically doesn't show a lot of them getting ready, making that transition. And so it does... I think create more of an illusion that like this is just mm. how women look. Mm-hmm. Like just women have like eyelashes yeah. out to the other side of the room and women's hair is always shiny and falls in soft waves. Um to the point that like sometimes when I watch other shows, like for example Too Hot to Handle on Netflix, we see a lot of the women getting ready and how much contouring they're doing and their hair, how it's up in a, you know, clips at night or or a bonnet. And my inst- my instinctive reaction is to be offended on their behalf, like mm-hmm. that they're being exposed in this way, because I think shows like The Bachelor have played into this expectation that I have, this social expectation that women are just presented. They are beautiful. You only see them once they've gone through this beauty process. And that is sort of their acceptable public self. 
And so I think that the way that I react to shows that reveal more of the process of putting on feminine drag is revealing, like, of what the show that I watch most is kind of selling me. And then we see that also in the way that um, they used to do often those dates where the bachelor creeps in at 5 a.m. and wakes them all up and he wants to see them without makeup, which really, I think, does play into the idea that it's it's sort of a, a trick, if they're if they are putting on a lot of makeup, doing a lot of hairstyling, that they should just look just as beautiful at five a.m. when Sean Lowe sneaks into their <laughs> into their dorm and wakes them up. Um, so there's just a lot, a lot to unpack with how The Bachelor does this. But another thing we wanted to talk about related to gender and The Bachelor is is sex. And mm-hmm. how the franchise uh, kind of holds a mirror up to our cultural attitudes about sex, like our obsession with it, our desire to control it. And one thing that is really distinctive about The Bachelor is the fantasy suite. And we were curious about your thoughts on the fantasy suite and how it functions in the world of The Bachelor um, as like a tool of sexual regulation. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the fantasy suite. I mean, just, yeah, there's so much to say about The Bachelor and sexuality (laughs) in general. I mean, so it's this kind of dual expectation, especially for women, mainly for women, right? That you should be sexual, but you should not be sexual, right? Or you have to be sexual in the right times, in the right ways, with the right people, for the right reasons, for the right reasons, right? (laughs) Um, And so... You know, within the fiction of the show, that is that kind of fantasy suite is, you know, these are the, within the sexual regulations of the show, that fantasy suite is, okay, that's the acceptable spot for your kind of sexuality to occur, for your sexual behavior to occur, but not really kind of before. Because if you kind of like sloppy kiss before, the, I mean, everyone's kissing, but, you know, if you kind of do too much before <laughs> then, it's kind of that slap down. Um, and it kind of, if you really don't do anything in the fantasy suite, then that's kind of slapped down. You kind of need to like hit the sweet spot of sexuality where it's like Goldilocks's porridge, right? Where it's like just <laughs> right. And I think that does like highlight these paradoxical expectations that we have for women, like the virgin horror dichotomy, right? Which, you know, has been written about a lot. Sort of this idea that, yep, you have to be this vixen, but you also have to refrain from sexuality to kind of increase your value to men, right? There's a certain sexual economy there is still, right, where you, if you give away sexuality too freely or too soon, then your your stock will plummet. Yeah, yeah. there's something about the fantasy suite that's almost like a, a little pseudo-marriage that says this woman only had sex when someone said it was okay. And yeah. so she's she's good. Like, she's doing sex the right way. She's waiting for the little the little light to go on, the little, like, bell to ring that's like, time for you to show your man how you love him with your body. And, and we've that seen it, kind of demonstrates her virtue. We've that seen she, it so that she, clearly punished when women, you know, overtly have sexual experiences outside of that, you know, quote-unquote correct moment and setting. We saw it on Caitlin Bristow's season of The Bachelorette, which is when we started our podcast, and she was stuck in Ireland for like a month after she had sex with Nick Vile. Um, 
And and also when Claire Crawley and Juan Pablo had a sexual experience in the ocean and then he literally like berated her essentially, like criticized her very openly and said like, my daughter is watching this show as if she had sort of seduced him into doing something untoward. Like mm-hmm. you see these just very clear demarcations on the show of what's right and what's not. And something that I'm interested in as well is the way that we've seen these small shifts in the discourse around sex within the world of The Bachelor. Like I think Caitlin Bristow's season and the the season before where Nick Vile brought up the fact that he had had sex with Andy Dorfman during the after the final rose, that sort of almost I think operated as a way to allow the show to begin speaking more openly about sex. Um, And I wonder what your thoughts are on like the way that the fantasy suite and these like kind of small deviations from that model frames the, the discourse around sex within bachelor world, or perhaps reflects cultural changes in the way we think about sex in the outside world. Yeah, so I, I, I certainly think that the show is somewhat nuanced in the way that it treats sexuality, especially female sexuality. Um, you know, as I talk about in the book, there is this kind of tension where on the one hand, it's kind of presenting its expectations for female sexuality in very conservative ways. But on the other hand, it kind of shows us kind of how we have kind of become more progressive over time about in our rela- in relation to female sexuality, right? I mean, these women, they're, they're hooking, like, Sometimes they're smooching a guy they just met, right? So in some ways, and, and you know, theoretically, that's like they have agency, right? You're, they're showing women who have agency over their own sexuality in some ways, right? I mean, again, yes, Claire, your point taken about the light going on and then, yes, <laughs> giving permission to like, now you may be sexual, right? But they are kind of showing women as sexual beings, Mm-hmm. So, yes, it has kind of shown how the needle has been moved and they are talking more openly. I, I take your point over time about the women on these shows being being sexual. Um, at the same time, oftentimes they're kind of sexual in ways that, again, kind of reify conventional ideas about gender, right? About right. women, right? Um <laughs> they're not straying so, too far. They're not straying. I mean, they're not like wearing jumpsuits or anything crazy like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't get too wild. Yeah. Don't cut your no. hair. No, I mean, so I think, but I, I again, I think that shows the tensions in like our expectation for women and how, you know, we 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 have moved, you know, there's a sexual revolution, right? We, we move forward, but at the same time, we're always kind of lashed to these 1950s kind of expectations from the past. And that's not just on The Bachelor, that's in life. Yeah, that's so true. And I think one thing that you point out in the book that was really eye-opening for me is the way that sort of the conventional femininity that contestants are expected to display kind of allows almost them to act in more shocking ways and kind of like gives us a tether um, so that when Hannah Brown, for example, is, can say, I had sex three times in a windmill and Jesus still loves me, that <laughs> might land differently than if she weren't like a very conventionally beautiful, well-groomed, feminine, blonde, white woman in a gown. Like we're able to receive that differently than someone 
in a, in a less privileged body and a less traditionally feminine presentation. And so that has definitely shifted how I think about some of these, some of these moments of like sexual freedom mm-hmm. <laughs> on the show. Cause they always come with that caveat. Yeah. Well, it's always point. like who gets to be free, right? Who and what mm-hmm. groups, right? And that's not just true about, you know, who gets to be free in terms of their sexuality, but who gets to be free in terms of, you know, how they decide to form a family, like what motherhood is, right? Like any of these social constructs, the people in that, in that privileged category are going to have more freedom. Yeah, definitely. And I, we're going to dive more into some of those questions yeah. after we take a quick break. We'll be right back with more from Danielle Lindman. Can you keep up? I like love it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes there will be something that is just like nagging at me, bothering me about something in my life, and I just swirl it around and around and around in my head and don't quite know how to address it. And something that can really help me sort that through and like take action is therapy. I completely agree. I've been really stressed lately because I've just been getting sick over and over again. And before I know it, I'm feeling a lot of emotions and I don't even connect where they're coming from with the actual origin. We all carry around these stressors, right? And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a great safe space to get things off of your chest and figure out how to actually work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash love to see it today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash love to see it. Okay, so you got engaged. Congrats. Now you may be wondering what comes next. If you're planning a wedding, the first thing you need to know about is Zola. With Zola, you can plan your entire wedding in one convenient place. From the day you get engaged and search for the venue to the day you send out your save the dates, make your registry, and even taste your cake. Zola has literally everything you need to make the whole process super easy and actually even enjoyable. There's even a five-star app that helps you plan on the go or, you know, from your couch, which is certainly how, uh, if I was planning a wedding, I would definitely want to do it as loungily as possible. <laughs> so important. I also just know myself. I I know that planning any kind of event, like even a birthday party, can get very stressful. And so it's been really cool to see friends use Zola. It really seems to make everything a lot less stressful. And as a frequent wedding attender. I love to be able to hop on that Zola registry and just purchase a gift. Easy peasy. I know I've done it. I won't forget. Thank you, Zola. Yeah, everything's all in the same place. It's perfect. Start planning at Zola.com. That's Z-O-L-A dot com. I am so glad that it's finally warming up. And it also means that I just want to have fun this summer and I don't want to be worrying about meal prep. And luckily... I can do something about that with Factor, especially because they have so many meal options like Protein Plus, Keto, Vegetarian, 
something for every diet. Their fresh, never-frozen meals are ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Make your whole day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. I love having a few factor meals just sitting in my fridge, especially because I work from home. It's so nice to finish up a taping and not have to figure out what to cook myself. Just look in my fridge and be like, oh, in two minutes, I can be eating mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice or tomato basil chicken risotto or Santa Fe style green chili beef skillet. And they always have a nice like vegetable side. It feels well-balanced. I feel full after, and it's not a headache at all. Head to factormeals.com slash LTSI50 and use code LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code LTSI50 at factormeals.com slash LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. Oh, I'm so happy the weather is finally turning. If you, like me, have been wanting to update your wardrobe for the long haul without, you know, spending a fortune, then Quince is for you. You can build up a lineup of timeless pieces that will keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year. Like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. And the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes those savings right on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, as well as premium fabrics and finishes. I love Quince for all these staples. I mean, linen is my favorite summer fabric. They have so many amazing linen staples. I also found my new go-to like summer running around to the playground in the coffee shop bag. It's the pebbled Italian leather front sling bag. I can just fit a wallet and my phone and my AirPods in it, maybe some lip balm. Absolutely perfect. I'm so obsessed with it. And the price was exactly what I wanted to. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash LTSI for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash LTSI to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash LTSI. Anyone who's been listening to this podcast for a while or even not that long knows that we love article. I mean, honestly, I'm looking around my home right now. Coffee tables from article. That lovely chair out on my deck. Article. Our big console. Article. I'm My bed frame. Article. This is an article household. It is. And it's, I mean, it was an inspiration to me. We finally got our first article piece of furniture recently, our new couch. And my husband and I are both constantly just like, how did we live before this couch? This is such an improvement over what we had before. It's so comfortable. It just seems to get more comfortable every day. I mean, it's the couch you dream of. 
And the reason that we have both been able to find ideal furniture on Article is because Article believes in delightful design for every home. And thanks to their online-only model, they have some really delightful prices, too. Their curated assortment of mid-century modern, coastal, industrial, Scandi, and boho designs makes furniture shopping simple. And their team of designers are all about finding that perfect balance between style, quality, and price because we all want the best of all of those three things united in one piece of furniture, right? Plus, they're dedicated to thoughtful craftsmanship that stands the test of time and, you know, looks good doing it. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash LTSI, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash LTSI for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. And we're back, and we have much more with author Danielle J. Lindemann. So, Danielle, one of the things you talk about in the book and something that many critics, including ourselves, have observed for a long time is that the Bachelor franchise has a really long history as a fundamentally white show and a, a white cultural space. How does the overwhelming whiteness of the show's cast and cultural references affect how viewers react to the show and and how they might react to cast of color as we've seen the show diversify over the last couple of years? Um, so, I mean, th- I think one of the things that's important to point out um, about sort of the whiteness and sort of lack of diversity um, on The Bachelor is that it's not just on The Bachelor, right? It reflects the kind of white privilege that exists in everyday life. It reflects the way that the homophily, like we talked about earlier, it reflects the way that people tend to pair up with other people who are quote unquote like them in terms of race, socioeconomics, um, and what have you. So, you know, people often say, well, you know, The Bachelor is this, you know, kind of white, has historically been, and it's changing, right, but has historically been this kind of white space. Um, and this is a different question from what The Bachelor should do or ha- has the moral responsibility to do, which I think is a separate question. But in many ways, the, the space of The Bachelor does reflect real life, which is racially stratified, right? In terms of where we go to school, in terms of where we live, in terms of who we date. A lot of white people don't even have a single black friend, right? So it is kind of instructive to look at the world of The Bachelor, you know, and there has been this critique of The Bachelor that it is, you know, very much a white space. Um, But I think it's important to understand the ways that that reflects broader society in which there are still a whole lot of white spaces, which I don't think necessarily answered your question. Um, But again, I think it's important to point out that, you know, yes, we can absolutely be critical of The Bachelor for its lack of, of, of diversity, Um, But at the same time, it's important to think about kind of where that comes from and what that reflects. Right. The Bachelor does not exist in in a vacuum. Exactly. Like and and it is interesting because when you watch the very first season of the show, you don't see the extreme, extreme overwhelming whiteness that we then got in the subsequent kind of chunk of seasons. And so clearly they were in some capacity, reacting to who is connecting to the messaging of the show, who is kind of interested in in being within this culturally white setting, and it was like white, evangelical, 24-year-old blondes. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and of course, you know, they, they threw in some people of color, and it became, to the extent that it became this kind of cultural 
meme, right, where it was even parodied on SNL, right, this idea that, okay, we're going to throw in a few people of color, but they're not really serious contenders, right? They kind of exist to sometimes be sounding boards for the the white people on the show who are obviously going to be, you know, the main focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that, again, shows us kind of how people of color are marginalized and sidelined in everyday life. Yeah. You write a lot uh, in in the book about race and the the idea of controlling images. Um, And I was curious if you could, like, maybe explain what controlling images are and what are some common examples of that that we might be likely to see on a show like The Bachelor? So controlling images, this is um, sociologist Patricia Hill Collins's um, term for basically cultural images that we sort of deploy, um, and typically of marginalized people. So, you know, people of color, women, uh, marginalized people in marginalized sexual categories. Um, so there's sort of these images that we deploy that ultimately present marginalized people in certain stereotypical ways, and they function to kind of uphold the kind of standard arrangement of power. So if we see, like, a low-income person being portrayed as a buffoon on reality TV, that helps us kind of justify for ourselves the fact that there is this, you know, immense class inequality, especially in our country, and to kind of justify and rationalize and explain away, oh, well, but that person is where they kind of belong because they behave in this kind of particular way. Um, and we see this with with kind of racial stereotypes um, as well on shows like, you know, The Real Real Housewives and Married to Medicine. I'd actually be interested, I know I'm not the one interviewing you, but I, <laughs> I would actually be interested in kind of your thoughts on especially in kind of the earlier seasons or even throughout the show, I don't necessarily feel like The Bachelor kind of relies on racial stereotyping to the extent that we see it in other forms of reality TV. Um, do you, would you say that that's an accurate assessment or do you, are there well, more that I'm not thinking I about? think something you talk about in the book is the what the absence of certain yes. you know, groups of people and, and the way that that is almost can be just as potent as a as an exaggerated, you know, controlling image. And I think that's probably more what The Bachelor has relied upon. Like this idea that, um, as you said, you know, for a long time, it was like every person of color would go home by week three. And so the implication is just people in those bodies are not desirable, are not to be paid attention to. We still, as as you point out in the book, rarely see, you know, Asian men cast mm-hmm. on The Bachelorette and rarely, and if they are, rarely see them go far. And that just speaks to um, the fact that there is a stereotype in our culture of Asian men as asexual and undesirable. And so I feel like that is, that absence is really what The Bachelor has has played with or relied upon to kind of perpetuate, perpetuate the, the, racial and gender-based structures that we see in the culture. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I, and that definitely struck me as well reading. I think that, like, as the show tries to figure out how to respond to various lawsuits and critiques about diversity, um, 
there is like a, a sort of discomfort that they're showing about how yeah. to do that without falling back on those stereotypes. And I think I, I think often of in Rachel's Rachel Lindsay season, the first Black Bachelorette, how uh, a man was cast who was publicly racist and also a number of Black men who ended up being sort of pushed into conflict and being described by him as aggressive. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, the show is trying to perhaps present the racist man as a villain, but they are also sort of in a two-for-one getting Black men that they can present as being, angry, you know, angry and therefore in their own way, sort of not the kind of man that you are going to end up with at the end of a show about love and dating. So Kenny King, for example, ended up being framed as sort of the angry Black man, even though we were given this sort of justification for his anger. And so I think the show does, as it's trying to evolve, is is falling back on some of those tools as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. Oh, I was going to say about Kenny. I mean, to me, that was a fast... I loved Kenny. Kenny is, like, one of my favorite contestants of all time. Um, But the Kenny exchange was really interesting to me because, if I recall correctly, there was kind of a fourth wall coming down there where, you know, Kenny's kind of of explained that, like, he's realizing, right? And I think that there's kind of been a a shift, right, in reality TV where now... Not that people of color, like, haven't always realized, right? But, like... They're, they're talking about it, and that's actually airing, right? And we don't just see it on The Bachelor. We see it on shows like uh, Real Housewives of Potomac or Married to Medicine, where people are saying, okay, but when you talk about me in that way, you're drawing upon this kind of from this well of stereotypes, and it becomes kind of almost educational mm. for the viewer in a way. And I feel like Kenny, I feel like, yes, it did portray Kenny in that way, but he kind of wouldn't bite. Right. He knew like you knew that Kenny knew what was going down in that moment. And he said, no, I'm not I'm not going to play this game. I'm not going to be like kind of pigeonholed into becoming this angry black man character, which is fascinating. Yeah. But yeah, I think there there was there is some there is some level. I think the show is like has some uh, at least amount of of positive in intention. And so I think there is this this fundamental tension that we're seeing on the show where they're, like, trying to take, you know, a couple steps forward, and then they they end up kind of splitting the difference and, like, falling back on these stereotypes and playing into these stereotypes while also trying to show that these contestants are are more than that. And so, as a sociological text, I think it is. It can be really, really useful. It just unfortunately often has a pretty negative impact on the people who are put in those situations yeah. to, to begin with. Yeah. Oh, uh, I wanted to just briefly before we before we move on, um, bring up the question also of just like these as real people are sort of navigating. They're, they're aware that they are going to be presenting themselves in these spaces on these shows. And so they have to also navigate questions like how their behavior will be received, um, specifically um, maybe compared to to other types of people um, displaying those behaviors. And so you write about, for example, a Black mom on Dance Moms who has to be much more measured uh, than the various white moms who are dealing with the 
extremely terrifying sounding dance coach. Um, how do we see that playing out as The Bachelor is trying to diversify and people of color are being sort of put into this space that is historically like for a white audience, courts a white audience and is a white space? Yeah, I mean, it's fast, especially when you look at, you know, Rachel, right, coming on as the first black bachelorette, right? She had to be absolutely perfect in every way, or she was going to be torn apart. Um, and it's, I think it's interesting, as I write about in the book, right, where um, there was that infamous tweet, right, where it was a former cast member who said, you know, what is this, love and hip hop, right? And then there was that kind of there was like a backlash against that, right? But what does that tweet say? That tweet says, oh, what is this person of color doing here in this space that has historically been really reserved for white people with the occasional like black person who we know is not very serious and not going to get very far kind of thrown in. Um, So I I think, yes, I think the show's absolutely, they're trying to diversify. They're trying to change. As a person, I think that that's a positive thing Um, But I think it remains to be seen whether, you know, this is just going to kind of reify existing racial stereotypes. You know, someone was asking me earlier, you know, can reality TV be saved or is it always going to be kind of racist and sexist? And I don't have, I don't, maybe you two have thoughts, but I don't really have an answer to that. I, I can't really imagine a reality TV that is not like so deeply, is not really drawing from these wells of stereotypes in, in such a way Well, it's also like a question of, are we going to have a culture that isn't racist and sexist? And right now, I mean, we're trying, but got a long way to go. So I can't, I can't imagine that reality TV is going to somehow turn overnight into this like bastion of equality when we live in a fundamentally unequal society that is like literally built on um, perpetuating that inequality. I think that's such a fantastic point. I, and I bring that up all the time, right? Again, we talked about how people are critical of the fact that we consume these programs. We always kind of feel like we have to justify, you know, because they are, you know, they are sexist and racist and classist um, in a lot of ways. But, you know, turn on the TV and the commercial for Tide is going to be, I don't know about racist, but it will be probably sexist, right? <laughs> I mean, just the, the material that we consume in our everyday life, like, much of it, it struggles with the same issues of inequality that reality TV struggles with, right? So yes, all this culture that we consume is reflecting our longstanding social inequalities. And that's, you know, it's problematic, but it doesn't set reality TV apart, as you said. Yeah. Uh, so we wanted to change change tax a little bit here uh, and talk about the question of like, script breaking, which I found so fascinating as I was reading your book. And some of the most like iconic Bachelor moments have come from the show's script being broken in some way. There are all these expectations like we've talked about, about how people navigate this process. And then when that script is broken in some way, you mentioned Andy Dorfman after the fantasy suite date, sort of challenging Juan Pablo, the lead, for not being interested in her during that private time. And she doesn't play into the idea that this was a sort of beautiful romantic interlude. And also like Colton ending his season by trying to run away and pursue a woman who had dumped him. 
um, which is something I think we very rarely see is a man on the franchise being willing to be like submissive in some way to a woman who has um, rejected him. Obviously, that turned much darker after the show mm-hmm. <laughs> wrapped. But I'm curious, like, what makes these moments of script breaking so powerful? And what would that like maybe look like in a world where we don't perhaps in a utopian world where we didn't live by such rigid scripts and roles? Well, I think, you know, in general, you know, so there's this thing in sociology called ethnomethodology where you basically, it's kind of fun. I have my students do it. Like you break social rules and by breaking social rules, you can kind of better understand the social rules. And I kind of see that as, as that what's happening with someone like Andy Dorfman, which I, again, I write about in the book, um, though not as connected to ethnomethodology, which is now what I'm thinking of. Um, <laughs> but but it kind of shows us how all, remember, we kind of talked about, right, how th- these shows kind of show us how our expectations for for relationships are built on kind of the shifting sands of culture, right? Like, these are all these expectations. They're not biological and essential and everlasting, right? They're things that we were socialized to learn. They were expectations that we were socialized into, right? Like this idea that obviously a woman should be kind of sexually available to a man. She should be happy to be pursued by a man. She should put herself aside and think about his interests, right? And suddenly, you know, Andy didn't want to play that game, right? And so she's breaking not only the script of The Bachelor, which is like the this fiction that overrides The Bachelor, that everyone just automatically is going to be in love with this guy that they meet. Like, just <laughs> mathematically, that seems kind of unusual, right? <laughs> but, you know, but that within the fiction of The Bachelor, okay, I'm on board with that, right? But not only that script, right, but she's breaking kind of these cultural scripts we have for women and gender and dating. And it's by breaking those scripts. I, too, am really fascinated by these moments of kind of script breaking, because by breaking the script, then we can understand what the script is in the first place. Yeah, that, that when you say that, I'm now thinking of the moment when uh, in the season premiere this season with Clayton, uh, where one of the women named Claire, because she is a heroine, decides she's not into Clayton. And the other women react to this in a way that seems so revealing to me, which is like, what's wrong with you for not liking Clayton? Any woman who doesn't want to marry Clayton is broken in some way. And therefore, she needed to be, like, cast out. She needed to be punished for sidestepping this this rule. Like, you can't have people in this space for long who aren't willing to buy into the, like, universal desirability that we want to believe The Bachelor has. It's almost like she's like, she's noticed the emperor has no clothes and instead of quietly leaving, she's like, everyone, the emperor has no clothes. And in that moment, she's revealing that we're all just pretending that it's normal for every woman who happens to be in a space to be (laughs) in love with the only man who's there. And I don't think I've ever quite seen that happen on the show before. And it was really really eye-opening about what we're saying about women and what they desire in men, um, which is that they are exactly like Clayton, I guess. (laughs) They're They're there. They're tall. They're there and tall. They're there, they're tall. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So something that we've also been fascinated with, um, because obviously we're a part of it, is the ecosystem that exists around a lot of reality shows, like the live tweeting, the Instagramming, the gossip, the podcasts. 
And so we often think about reality TV like as a community building tool. Like, how does it function in that way um, from what you've observed? So this is fascinating too. So sort of studies show, right, that we still stigmatize reality TV. So on the one hand, it's like this guilty pleasure that we're not supposed to admit that we like. We're not really supposed to talk about it at parties, even if we do, right? But on the other hand, it's kind of paradoxical because first of all, more of us are watching than not, as we pointed out, millions of us are watching. Um, But studies also show that one of the reasons that we keep tuning in is because it serves this kind of communal function, right? You know, I was saying before, it's similar to football in some ways. This is one of the ways that it's similar to football. You root for your team, right? Like, the Real Housewives reunions are my Super Bowl, right? And I connect (laughs) with my friends, and not just my friends, but people kind of across class positions, like people from kind of all walks of life about these shows. So it's really interesting because it's supposed to be this like guilty pleasure. It's stigmatized. It's kind of dirty. We don't really want to admit to watching it. But at the same time, so many of you are watching it that it is really surfing this kind of solidaristic, like communal function within society where we're connecting with friends. We're having watch parties. We're listening to podcasts, right? We are um, on message boards and on social media and we're tweeting at the stars uh, and, and at each other about the things that we see um, on the show. So it's, it's really this fascinating duality to me where on one level we kind of reject it and it's supposed to be this kind of deviant practice. But on the other hand, it's it's bringing us, a lot of us, closer together. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's literally why we have a job. I mean, that's... It's- <laughs> Thank you to reality TV. It's also interesting the way that we we always talk about sports serving this function across class and race and so many elements of how we categorize ourselves. But gender is like such a fundamental dividing line in a certain way that like, I never feel like, oh, if I have to make conversation with a man, I can definitely just bring up Real Housewives and we'll have something to talk about. Um, And I think that's sort of interesting as well. Um, It's more likely that women will be like, well, I have to learn something about sports so I can talk to men that I that I have to get along with than vice versa. That's so Um, true. That stigma playing into it again. But you would be surprised Um, at how many men end up knowing things about reality TV. And it's not always because they're lying about not watching, which sometimes (laughs) they are. Right. But, you know, it's out there, right, in the cultural ether. So even if you're not watching, you, you know, you read about it in like regular news media, it's on social media, it's inescapable, sort of, it's, it's out there. So I think you could connect with some men um, around <laughs> reality TV shows. Maybe it depends on the shows. I mean, my boyfriend has just absorbed a lot by osmosis, despite the fact that he does not enjoy reality tv at all but he knows so much yes yeah i say that about my husband all the time he's not a fan at all but you know he'll sometimes end up knowing things about the shows before i do because he reads about it in like the washington post or the times (laughs) you hear about colton i'm like what how do you know about this but he absorbs right like i'll be watching like rupaul's drag race and he'll walk by and be like she's so fish i'm like what how do you know what that means (laughs) Right. So it's, again, sort of by osmosis, not only from me, but, you know, from the larger culture. Yeah. No, we like if you like give your friend, your male friend or partner, so just like a little bit of information about the reality TV they're watching, they start to like soak it in from all angles. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, on this show, we always, 
you know, talk about the different ways you can watch reality TV, that you can do it just as a fan, but also by taking this critical lens that we keep talking about. So one thing that really struck me and made me take a step back was how you wrote about reality TV being also part of this tradition of more well-off people, more educated people, people from a higher social class, kind of reminding themselves of their own superiority, their own perceived superiority by consuming entertainment that is by or for or about people who are in lower social classes. You talk a little bit about like slumming and the history of that. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what slumming really means, like where that comes from and how reality TV plays into that tradition. Sure. So sociologist named Jennifer Lena writes about slumming um, and she sort of writes about how this has kind of there's long been a history of elites kind of using lower class people as forms of entertainment in order to kind of booster their, their own senses of superiority. So these slumming parties that happened in like the 1800s in like London and New York people from the elite classes would go into lower income neighborhoods um, and it became this kind of spectacle. Like they had rat pit gambling where they would watch a terrier kill a rat in the ground, right? But can you draw a line from rat pit gambling to watching a show like Here Comes Honey Boo Boo? I personally, I think you can, right? So we've kind of been wringing entertainment out of these kind of low-class, right, working-class stereotypes for hundreds of years, reality TV is just kind of doing it in a new and maybe more kind of amplified way. And there was a one study in Britain that did show that, um, I think it was, was it teen boys or college? It was young, it was boys or young men were watching these shows, middle-class uh, young men were watching these shows to kind of boost, again, their own sense of their class superiority compared to the kind of working class or lower class people on the shows. Yeah. And something that I found interesting that you talk about in in the book is the way that like this consumption of low culture, it, it, the, the exchange isn't equal. Like people from and the upper classes might consume that low culture, but it's not as though there's then an exchange where people in in lower socioeconomic uh, classes are are then having as much access to quote unquote high culture, like opera, for example, which you mentioned before, um, and that definitely made me made me think about my own cultural consumption. Yeah, I mean, I think we can think about, you know, the consumption of reality TV itself, right, through that particular lens. There's sort of a lot been written about how we've become more culturally omnivorous, right? So omnivorous is probably, like, not a word you've heard unless and since you were, like, five years old learning about dinosaurs, right? <laughs> but we, we consume different types of both high and low culture, right? But who's really doing that? It's the elites who are doing that, who are consuming both high and low culture. And as Jennifer Lena points out, right— doesn't make them any less of elites, right? Elites are still going to be elites. Whether or not you are watching The Real Housewives, you are still going to be a class elite. Um, Just because elites are sometimes dabbling in low culture, you know, the way that the slumming parties happened as well, um, that doesn't really fundamentally rattle the cage of the class system. You also bring up in the book this idea of the democratization of taste. And and can you explain a little bit what you mean when you write that reality TV can be a key site for the democratization of taste? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really nuanced, right? Because on the one hand, right, I'm an academic. We don't like to give straightforward answers, right? On the one <laughs> hand, right, you know, as I was just saying, like reality TV shows us that the class system is heartily intact, even if, you know, Hillary Clinton is, you know, partial to Dorinda on The Real Housewives, even if elites are consuming reality TV or, or consuming low culture you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, people from lower social classes are now like watching opera more or ambling through museums more. That's not actually true. Um, so, yeah, the, the arrow of omnivorousness seems to flow in one direction. And it's mainly kind of elites dabbling and even kind of slumming um, to ex- to an extent. So that's happening. But at the same time, and again, I, I believe in the transformative power of reality TV. I know we talk a lot about like the ugly stereotypes in reality TV. Absolutely. They need to be talked about. But I really believe in the transformative potential of reality TV. And one of the things I think reality TV has the power to do, and I'm guessing you believe it too because you have this podcast, right, is kind of bring people together around these shows, right? I've had conversations with so many different people, different demographic groups, right, about these shows, and we're kind of bonded in our shared kind of love for what's happening on our screens. Um, And I think, you know, we can harness that in a really kind of productive way where we're not only are we bonding about the things happening on our screens, but we can shift a little and think about it in a critical way, which possibly is the whole point of this podcast. So we hope so. That's definitely what we're going for. And I also loved that you wrote about in the book, the ways in which the more kind of fringe reality shows are perhaps the the greatest sites for that kind of transformative power. Um, you know, obviously The Bachelor is on ABC, but then we do have all of these smaller cable channels and there are is like a massive selection of, of reality shows that exist that have fewer eyeballs on them. But like maybe then that's the that's the way that you can kind of get that real exciting experimentation. Yeah, so I, I, I quote a media scholar named Raquel Gates who writes about what she calls the televisual gutter of reality TV <laughs> and how there's sometimes more freedom in the gutter, right? Because people aren't necessarily always paying attention or really, you know, giving it as much scrutiny, right? So, you know, the ripples and the back channels of, of, of cable, you know, sometimes there's amazing things happening on those shows if you know where to look. And hey, in general, Reality TV, I know we talk about its diversity problem, but historically it's been a lot more diverse than other forms of media. And yes, not all those representations are great, um, absolutely, but the represent, there's something to be said for representation, not only in terms of um, racial representation, but representation of queer people. Reality TV was on the vanguard uh, of queer representation before other forms of media um, started to catch up. So... Yes. And I think to to some extent, you can see that more in shows that aren't, you know, kind of front and center like The Bachelor. The Bachelor is still very kind of conventional, traditional, stratified, heteronormative, gender normative show. Um, But if you kind of know where to look, there's like there's there's drag queens over there, (laughs) you know. Uh, Maybe this is a good place to end. But I, I just am curious, like if you could to a a viewer of The Bachelor or similar reality shows out there say, here is like one key thing to keep in mind while you're watching or one tool to use to look at the show. Um, What would you want more people to be be implementing to like have in mind as they're watching that 
that they can bring to how they how they consume these shows? One thing. Oh, that's really tough. Um, so I think <laughs> I mean, again, you know, I do. I tell my students, you don't have to feel bad or guilty about watching these shows. Otherwise, I would feel bad and guilty, too. Um, but I think it's really about consuming them with a critical eye and thinking about what are the expectations that underlie the action that you're seeing in the show, especially expectations for people in certain groups? What are the expectations for women, for people of color, for people in certain class positions, right? What expectations are being promulgated here? And to what extent are those expectations kind of biological and essential and unshakable? Spoiler alert, to zero extent, right? (laughs) All of these expectations are, to some extent, kind of socialized, um, so I think just it kind of in large, a large frame to put around this is view with the critical eye. Don't, you know, don't stop viewing, but view with the critical eye and an eye toward thinking about the kind of cultural and socialized expectations that underlie the action that you're seeing on your screen. What I'm taking away from this is that, like, it's okay for us to take the things that might be coded as silly or frivolous that we enjoy and and take them seriously and learn from them and think about them in in deep and interesting ways and that the the cultural shame that exists around these spaces is is perhaps misguided for that reason absolutely i think that that's 100% true and i feel like you know and that's what you two are doing with this podcast which i, I so appreciate as well i feel like i found my people here <laughs> yeah. people who appreciate this as serious text right yeah exactly that's how i felt reading the book as well and it was such a joy to read i think anyone who listens to this podcast would really get a lot out of this book it's called true story what reality tv says about us Danielle, thank you so, so much for joining us today. This was so much fun, and I learned even more than I did reading the book. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a blast. And that's it for Love to See It with Emma and Claire. Thanks to our guest, Danielle Lindemann. Her book, True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us, is out now. Love to See It is produced by us, Claire Fallon and Emma Gray, and Stitcher. This episode was edited by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our theme music is by Tamar Haviv, and our art is by Celine Chang. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. If you like the show, please rate five stars and leave a review. And of course, help us spread the word about our show, especially to your friends who used to listen to us as Here to Make Friends. If you want to get in touch, you can always email us at claireandemmapod at gmail.com with your questions and voice memos. You can also find us on Twitter at love to see it pod and Instagram at claireandemmapod. And you can find our newsletter rich text on Substack at claireandemma.substack.com. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at emmaladyrose. And I'm at Claire E. Fallon. We'll be back next week to recap the next stage of Clayton's journey. Can you keep up? I like Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. 
Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.